Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm excited to welcome back, after a little hiatus, two of our uh, very, uh, very frequent visitors and friend of the program, uh, Dr. Mike Hofkamp and Dr. Jacqueline Galvin. So listeners will, I'm sure, remember some of the fantastic OB podcasts that we've done. Uh, Dr. Hofkamp is Director of OB Anesthesia at the Scott & White Medical Center at Temple and Clinical Associate Professor at, in the Department of Anesthesia at Texas A&M. And Dr. Jacqueline Galvin is the Director of the OB Fellowship at University of Illinois Chicago and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Anesthesia there as well. Uh, guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I will say that this is a particularly salient topic for me at the moment because my wife is 37 and a half weeks pregnant and though she certainly does not match the definition of the uh, stem that we'll read in this case uh, we are going to be uh, having our third daughter very soon and obviously excited about that so we are going to do a mock oral board uh, being the season to uh, a lot of people are out there studying for them. Uh, but we're going to do one geared around OB, which makes sense since that's your guys' area of specialty. And we're going to do it a little, a little differently than we've done uh, them in the past. So instead of going the entire way through the wrong way and then the entire way through the right way, what we're going to do is actually go question by question and have first, uh, Mike, you will give us the wrong, uh, quote-unquote, wrong answer, and then Jackie is going to give us the right answer. And so that should allow us to kind of juxtapose the two for our listeners, and people can really see right there next to each other uh, what we would consider kind of the, um, some mistakes and, and the more uh, example way to do it. All right, so... We are going to launch right in. Let me read you all the stems. So uh, here we go. This is going to be uh, the first session, which, as you remember, is going to be you'll get a little bit more extensive stem, and then your questions will be intra-op and post-op, and that's as opposed to the second room, your second uh, time through oral boards, which will be a pre-op and intra-op. So this one is the first, which is intra-op, post-op, and the stem is this. So you have a 30-year-old Primogravid woman at 37 weeks of pregnancy who presents to her obstetrician's office for a routine visit and is found to have new onset hypertension. She is admitted to the labor and delivery unit where she denies headache, visual disturbances, and abdominal pain. Fetal heart monitoring is reassuring. Her past surgical history is none. Her past medical history is none. Her physical exam is the following. Her height is 170 centimeters. She weighs 110 kilograms. Her BMI is 38.1. Her blood pressure is 140 over 89. Her heart rate is 80. Her respiratory rate is 20. She's setting 99% on room air. Her uh, malampati class is 3. She has a full range of motion of her neck. Her thyromental distance is 3 finger breaths. She has a regular rate and rhythm. She has trace edema in her ankles. Her lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally. Her hemoglobin is 13. Her platelets are 101,000. Her urine protein over creatinine ratio is undetectable. Her AST is 20, and her ALT is 30. So that's the stem. Normally, at your actual oral board, you would get about 10 or 15 minutes to take some notes and prepare, and then you would go in. Of course, we are going to jump right in 
And so we're going to start by uh, each time we'll have Dr. Hofkamp do the quote-unquote wrong way, and then we'll turn to Dr. Galvin for the right way. So let's jump right in. Uh, Mike, you uh, are now taking care of this woman. Her blood pressure is now 159 over 110 with a reassuring fetal heart rate in the 130s. What do you think about the blood pressure? Uh, what was it an hour ago? So an hour ago, it was slightly lower. It was 140 over 105. Well, um, if it was lower before and it's high now, I think it's pretty high. Okay. Uh, and should we lower it? Yes, we should lower it. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, how much should we lower it? Uh, probably to normal, like 120 over 80. And are you concerned about lowering it too quickly? Um, not really. I mean, normal is kind of where you want to be with this patient, so that's how I would uh, I would approach it. And how would you lower it? Um, I'd probably use some drugs like, um, I don't know, maybe um, hydrochlorothiazide or, um, I don't know, um, some kind of ACE inhibitor like uh, Losartan. Okay. Uh, are you concerned about the side effects of any of those medications? Well, I mean, you have a, a term baby, so I don't think, I'm not really worried about fetal side effects uh, at this point. I mean, organogenesis has already taken place, so I'm not really worried. Okay. So now we're going to turn to Dr. Galvin and ask the same questions. So, Dr. Galvin, you're taking care of this uh, young lady. Her blood pressure is now 159 over 110 with a reassuring fetal heart rate in the 130s. What do you think about the blood pressure? Well, I am concerned about this term patient who has a uh, viable fetus who's presenting for delivery, particularly the diastolic number of 110 would technically count as a severe range blood pressure. So I think it would be important to monitor it to see if that's a sustained blood pressure or just an isolated, elevated blood pressure. Okay. Should it be lowered? Um, if the either diastolic or systolic are sustained for more than 15 minutes, um, according to the new guidelines on hypertension and pregnancy, we should take measures to start lowering it. Okay. And how much should we lower it? You don't want to lower the blood pressure too, too quickly for fear of causing um, decreased blood flow to the placenta and then subsequently fetal compromise, so we would lower it to probably a range of around 140 over 80. Okay. And uh, you already mentioned any other concerns about lowering it too quickly, or is fetal um, perfusion the main concern? Well, it's always a balance between the maternal well-being and those concerns in the fetal well-being. So certainly lowering the blood pressure too much in the mother may also cause some cerebral hypoperfusion, which may manifest as some unpleasant things uh, such as dizziness or, or headaches, certainly. So we do have to worry about the mother and the baby at the same time. And how would you lower the blood pressure? You could either start with one of two agents that are generally recommended in pregnant patients. So we could start with labetalol or hydralazine. Okay. And which would you if choose? If she has an IV, of course. And which would you choose for your first dose? I would probably want to take into consideration the maternal heart rate. Um, certainly, if it was on the lower end, maybe I would go with hydralazine that doesn't have any heart rate lowering effects. Um, but I would, I would start with labetalol, 20 milligrams, and then wait 10 minutes and then reassess the blood pressure. Okay. 
Thank you. We're going to turn back to uh, Mike. And uh, the next question for you is, the obstetric team has diagnosed the patient with preeclampsia based on the blood pressure and a urine urine protein to creatinine ratio of 0.3. A magnesium infusion has been initiated. It's been four hours since admission. Would you want another platelet count prior to considering a neuraxial anesthetic in this patient? Um, 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 I read a study once that you don't really need uh, to get a platelet count in this instance, so I wouldn't get one. I would just place the neuraxial anesthetic. Okay. And uh, is there a number at which you would want to repeat it if you had had an original platelet count at a certain number? Um, well, um, I don't know, probably like 82 or something. Um, yeah. Okay. And if you had, and is there a number at which you would not place an epidural in this patient? Um, this patient, well, she's got preeclampsia. She's got 101,000. You know, I probably wouldn't place an epidural at all in this patient, to be honest with you. I don't know. I'd, I'd want to see a little bit of a higher platelet count than 101,000. Are you concerned little, about Are you concerned about the patient uh, being in, in pain and asking for pain relief? Well, you know, we can do things like, you know, um, they've got these birthing balls, and those can work sometimes. And uh, we can give her some IV opioids. And, uh, you know, we can kind of like talk her through it. And that, that's what I would do. I would just tell her that it's just way too dangerous at this point to put an epidural in. And, you know, I would, I would probably tell her that she could be paralyzed if she bleeds. And I'm concerned about bleeding because with preeclampsia and this is kind of a really borderline play account of 101,000. So, okay. Um, Jackie, so the obstetra team has diagnosed the patient with preeclampsia based on the blood pressure and a urine protein to creatinine ratio of 0.3. A magnesium infusion was initiated. It's been four hours since admission. Would you want another platelet count prior to placement of a neuraxial anesthetic? If I had this patient at this particular juncture in her labor course, so she's been diagnosed with preeclampsia, she's on magnesium, um, and she does want a neuraxial anesthetic for pain management. Um, I think placing an epidural in her would be beneficial to not only her, but to the fetus. The benefit to her would be to have a, a way to give not only pain medication, but also to facilitate any emergency procedures, such as cesarean delivery, which this patient is at high risk for. And generally speaking, I would also like to avoid anything um an emergent general anesthetic in her because she's also obese and has a airway class of three, which can be um, related to difficult airway in a patient that patient population that is already at risk for difficult airway. So I think having the catheter in place as well working would be beneficial to her. And in terms of benefits to the baby, there are, it can tone down the sympathetic system, which is upregulated in preeclampsia, which may help deliver more vigorous blood flow to the placenta. So I think there's dual benefits in having an epidural in this patient. Um, In terms of the platelet count, sorry, in terms of the actual platelet number, pregnant patients are hypercoagulable, and there are some large studies that suggest that 
the incidence of epidural hematoma in pregnant patients per se is fairly low. And I think the benefits uh, far exceed the risk of epidural hematoma in this patient who's probably hypercoagulable. So would you want a repeat platelet count? I would not get a repeat platelet count at this juncture. 100 is low, but I think it's still in a range that is safe and that confers the utmost benefits to the patient. Is there a number at which you would have wanted a repeat count if it had been if a number had had come across the first time? I think it largely depends on how quickly we think the platelets are falling, which is a um, a trend that's not well described. So if I had to pick an arbitrary number, if the platelets were around seventy five thousand four hours ago, I might elect to repeat a platelet at that count. Um, but at this juncture, I would not. I would just go ahead and place the epidural. Okay. Back to Mike. So would you place a regular epidural, a combined spinal epidural, or a dural puncture epidural in this patient, assuming that you've decided to place an epidural? Uh, I would definitely place a regular epidural. Why? Uh, That's just what we did where I did my residency. So I've always done it. and That's what I would do. Okay. Let's assume that you place a dural puncture epidural. You get loss of resistance at 7 centimeters in the L4-5 interspace. A spinal needle is then inserted through the TUI needle, and no cerebral spinal fluid is obtained when the stylet is removed. What is the differential diagnosis for no CSF return? Um, well, it could be maybe something's wrong with the needle. Okay. What else could be going on? Um... Maybe, um, maybe the, uh, well, I mean, I guess the needle could be in the wrong place. Okay. Would you thread a catheter through the needle? Yeah. I mean, the patient's probably in discomfort and I don't want to put her through any more discomfort. So I just throw a catheter and, you know, I mean, like. You know, if I was doing a regular epidural, I've gotten a loss of resistance, done the same thing anyway. So, you know, what does it matter? Okay. Is there any benefit to obtaining a new loss of resistance and obtaining uh, CSF through a spinal needle in another space? Hmm. I don't know. Probably not. Okay. Let's say you decided to try again, but the patient became uncooperative with your repeated attempts. What would you do? Um... I think I told you I already did. I would just thread the catheter to begin with. I don't, I don't know why you're asking this question. Okay. Let's turn to uh, Dr. Galvin. So, Dr. Galvin, uh, would you place a regular epidural, a combined spinal epidural, or a dural puncture epidural in this patient, assuming you decided to place an epidural? I would, I would assume that the patient, if I'm going to see her for epidural placement, is in a tremendous amount of pain. So assuming the patient is in 10 out of 10 pain on a visual analog score, that overall she's doing well and is stable from her preeclamptic management and the fetus is stable. So I would make sure that the fetus has had the reassuring tracing. If all those things were in place, I would do a combined spinal epidural. Why? Um, well, one, the combined spinal epidural has superior onset of pain relief, which is certainly beneficial to a mother who is laboring. There's also some thought that the combined spinal epidural has a reliable efficacy in comparison to a traditional epidural that doesn't have any uh, dural uh, violation via spinal needle. So for those who, so efficacy and pain relief. Okay. 
So let's, as- let's assume you decide to do a dural puncture epidural technique. You get loss of resistance at 7 centimeters in the L4-5 interspace. You insert a spinal needle through the TUI needle. You get no CSF when the stylet is removed. What is the differential diagnosis for no CSF return? Sure. If I'm doing a needle-through-needle combined spinal epidural technique and I do not get CSF return, I might assume that either my loss resistance is not in the midline of the, of the patient, so maybe off to the left or right in her epidural space, or it cannot be in the epidural space at all. So those would probably be my top three things I would be thinking of. Okay. Would you thread a catheter through your TUI? I think it depends where we're at in the epidural placement. For example, if, the, again, the mother is doing well and the baby is doing well and the mother wanted to continue with the procedure, I would, um, I would confirm that it is okay to keep, uh, to attempt another loss of resistance. If, for example, the mom was getting tired of the procedure or something was not going well with the baby, I would just thread the catheter at that juncture and then have to assess my catheter immediately to see if it works. And if the mother was okay to continue trying the procedure, you would do what? I would either, if I thought I was in the lateral aspect of the epidural space, I would try to redirect my TUI towards the patient midline, or I would just try to attempt loss resistance at another inner space. Okay. What if, uh, and you already said, but if the patient was uncooperative, you would then go ahead and thread the needle. Is that right? Thread the catheter. Sure. Is that right? I think that's important to take into consideration from the patient autonomy perspective. If the mother says that she does not want to continue with repeated measures, it would be reasonable to stop at that juncture, thread the catheter, and then reassess its function immediately thereafter. What is the benefit to obtaining a new loss of resistance as opposed to just threading the catheter if, if it is possible to try another time? It is possible that at my first loss resistance, where I did not get the CSF through the spinal needle, that my technique is um, would my technique is compromised, and then therefore my catheter would be would be compromised. So obtaining a loss resistance and then CSF through the spinal needle again, the needle through needle technique, I'd be more confident in my technique, and that my catheter would give the utmost benefit to the patient, which is the most important. Okay, let's go back to Dr. Hofkamp. Prior to epidural placement, the patient was started on labetalol for blood pressure management. Would you still administer an epidural test dose? Sure, absolutely. Do you have any concerns? No, not really. I mean, I always administer a test dose because I'm looking for intravascular placement and making sure it's not intrathecal. So, I mean, I just, I'd want to know that in this patient as well. So, yeah, I would do the test dose. And how does a test dose determine if the catheter is intravascular or not? Well, the epinephrine in the test dose um, would cause some kind of increase in heart rate, and I'd be listening for that. Okay. And how does a test dose determine if the catheter is uh, intrathecal or not? Um, I think the, the lidocaine kind of acts like a spinal, so... You know, I guess the legs would be numb if uh, if it was intrathecal. Okay. Know. Dr. Uh, Galvin, prior to epidural placement, the patient was started on labetalol for blood pressure management. Would you still administer an epidural test dose? I still would administer an epidural test dose with the possible concern that the beta blockade and alpha blockade would mask signs of intravascular placement. For example, with the epinephrine component of the test dose, I would 
expect to see tachycardia or hypertension um, within a minute on my Tesco. So that might be masked by the labetalol. Um, however, I probably would still administer my, my testose in, uh, with epinephrine and a local anesthetic to rule out intravascular or, or intrathecal placement. Is there any other way to determine if the catheter is intravascular, given the beta and alpha blockade from the labetalol? There are several other methods that are described, such as giving a fentanyl-only test dose, and if the patient becomes quite sedated after the fentanyl, administration, you might assume the catheter is intravascular. However, again, this, this particular patient is also on magnesium, so I think that also might complicate that method as well. So I think it would be prudent to choose a method I'm already comfortable with, so the local anesthetic and epinephrine, uh, wait my three minutes, see what results I get, and then proceed from there if I think it's anything unusual. Okay. We're going to turn back to Mike. So two hours after neuraxial placement, the patient complains of 10 out of 10 pain with contractions. On examination, the patient has a T8 level to cold sensation on the right side and a T12 level on the left side. What do you think is going on? Well, first, I'd want to make sure she's not faking it. And how would you do that? Um, I would ask her very carefully if she was absolutely sure that the exam that I was giving her was was truthful because I've had a lot of patients, you know, kind of give me a line about pain control, trying to get narcs and everything. And, you know, I, I always am suspect of people complain of pain. And what would you do uh, if you felt she was being honest? Well, I would give her what she wanted. I'd give her some, like, Dilaudid or something because that's what these people usually want. So, Is there anything you could do to improve the function of the epidural that you placed? Um, I don't know if the epidural is really the problem here, but, you know, I guess we can pretend it is. And so maybe I might tell her to hit her button, you know, and tell her, re try to tell her that the button's there for her to push and that she should keep on pushing it. Okay. Let's assume that you uh, give her two separate boluses of dilute local anesthetic through the catheter, but that only provides minimal relief. A colleague of yours suggests that the epidural catheter should be replaced, but the patient refuses. What would you say to the patient? Um, I would tell the patient that she's making a horrible decision, that she's going to be in a lot of pain, and that uh, she really needs the catheter to be replaced. And and um, and I try to, uh, and if she had a like a boyfriend or a husband, I try to get him on my side. And tell him, like I'd probably take him outside the room and tell him that we need to talk her into getting this epidural because it's going to be easier for all of us, including the nurse. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I would do. I'd try to get the husband involved and possibly the OB nurse, and all of us would kind of do an intervention and tell her that she really needed to get this epidural replaced. What are your concerns about leaving the epidural in place? It just doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't seem like it's working. So. You know, that's really my, my concern. Okay. Uh, Dr. Galvin, two hours after neuraxial placement, the patient complains of 10 out of 10 pain with contractions. On examination, the patient has a T8 level to cold sensation on the right and a T12 level on the left. What do you think is going on? Well, the first thing I would do is do a systematic evaluation of my catheter. So I would look at my um, infusion, make sure that that's hooked up properly, that my pump is on, it's running, uh, check the catheter integrity and the tubing, make sure there's no tears or kinks. 
I would check the location or the catheter secured to the back, make sure I think that's the same centimeter depth at which it was originally placed. I'd obviously ask where the pain is at, um, you know, make sure that it's in the realm of which the epidural covers. And I would do my other examination, like look at vital signs and look at the fetal heart tones, make sure there's no motor block or some other things. After that, what I have left is I have a disparate level. So one side is high and one side is low, and that certainly is not going to give the patient's pain management coverage or certainly confer benefit if she, again, were to need something emergent, like an emergency cesarean delivery. And so what would you do? What I would do, I would suspect, so similarly, local anesthetic is going more to one side than another side, so in this case, it's going, uh, there's better spread on the right. So I might withdraw the catheter a centimeter, try to bring the tip back into, into the midline, take the tip of the epidural catheter, rather. And then I would give a bolus of our dilute local anesthetic solution to try to see if we can even out those levels. All right, let's assume you do both of those things, including two boluses of dilute local anesthetic through the catheter, but the patient only gets minimal relief. A colleague suggests that the epidural catheter be replaced, but the patient refuses. What would you say to the patient? Well, first I would like sorry. First I would like to find out why the patient is refusing and try to understand where where she is coming from and address some of her concerns. If the concerns are still not um, Israel's concerns, then I would try to um, try to have an open discussion about what are some of the potential downstream concerns. Like, for example, if, again, she needed an emergency cesarean delivery, this catheter might not work, and that puts her general anesthesia, which is in general uh, uh, challenging for her and for the baby, meaning that there might be more complications. Um, after we discuss those particular things and the patient still refuses, at that point I have to respect her wishes, unfortunately. Do you have any concerns about leaving the epidural in place? In a patient whom I've done a number of um, boluses on the catheter, meaning additional administration of local anesthetic, and I think the catheter works suboptimal, I would be concerned that and if something emergent came up like cesarean delivery, that the catheter may not function. Okay. I'm going to turn back to uh, Dr. Hofkamp. A cesarean section is called due to a non-reassuring, non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing. Would you choose general anesthesia or regional anesthesia for this anesthetic? Um, um, I don't know. I'd ask the obstetricians, I guess, what they want. The obstetricians uh, say this is your decision. What would you choose? Um, I guess I'd have to ask the patient's husband what he thought if he was there. But um, if the patient's husband wasn't there, I guess I'd ask the patient. Let's assume you and the patient decide to go forward with a neuraxial technique. A focused physical exam reveals a T9 level on the right side and no discernible level on the left side. What do you think is going on? Um, well... She might have been laying on her right side, and all the medicine could have been gone down to the right, and the left side could have been up. And you know, I'd be asking her if she was laying down on her right side. And what would you do? Um, I don't know. I mean, it was so hard to put the the epidural in the first place. I probably just um, probably just dose it up with lidocaine, two percent. Okay, so you would give a bolus of 2% lidocaine, 
Do you have any concerns uh, with this technique? Mm, you know, I guess I'd be concerned that she'd have an uneven level and that would be too bad because she'd probably be in some pain if they did the C-section like that. Okay. Would you remove the epidural catheter and attempt a spinal anesthetic if your bolus did not work? Um, you know, actually, that's a good idea. I, I would probably do that, yes. What dose would you use? Um, I'd probably use, um, if I'm using that stuff we usually use that comes in the kit, I forget what it's called, but um, I'd probably use like two cc's of that. Okay. Uh, what would be your concerns with a technique that you mentioned? Um, I'd be concerned about not getting the spinal in. I would be concerned that, um, you know, I don't want the patient any more discomfort. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I guess I don't really have any concerns about doing that spinal. Would you prefer a general anesthetic? You know, she's got a BMI of 38, and, you know, she's probably going to be tough to intubate. So, um, I don't know. I don't think I would do a general. And besides, like, you know, I was taught in residency that we don't put pregnant patients to sleep. Okay. Let's say your choice of a regional technique fails and the OB team requests a general anesthetic. How would you induce general anesthesia for this patient? Uh, I wouldn't. I would just tell the OBs that I wasn't putting her to sleep. If your uh, spinal technique fails, you now have an unanesthetized patient. And uh, let's assume you decide to move forward with general anesthesia. Uh, how would, I, you I would I would? I would not. If I would use uh, ketamine boluses through the IV, and I would tell the obstetricians to use local because I just I don't put pregnant patients to sleep because it's just too dangerous. And what are your concerns about putting them to sleep? It's losing the airway because they're they got bad airways. All every every last one of them has got bad airway. Would you allow the patient's husband to stay? Absolutely not. That's that's ridiculous. I, I would I have a hard enough time having those uh, those partners in when everything's going perfect. I certainly don't want them in when things are going bad. Okay, Doctor Galvin, a cesarean section is called due to a non reassuring fetal heart rate tracing. Would you choose a general anesthetic? or a regional technique? My choice of anesthetic, of course, it would be um, dependent upon the maternal condition and the fetal condition and the nature of the urgency of the C-section. In a patient that I already had an existing epidural in, my preference would be to activate that epidural for a C-section. However, if I discussed with the obstetricians and there was absolutely no time to dose the epidural, then I would choose general anesthesia at that time. But in this patient, I think using the in-situ epidural would be the, that's the anesthetic I would choose first. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's say you do a focused physical exam and it reveals a T9 level on the right side and no discernible level on the left side. What do you think is going on? Well, unfortunately, I think that the catheter is not um, performing or not giving me the ideal the ideal anesthetic. And certainly with just a unilateral block, my confidence in converting into a surgical anesthetic is fairly low. Okay. What would you do? 
So I would, if I was the most, the most proficient anesthesiologist in this particular situation, I would discuss with the obstetricians, see how much time I had to do a new block. Ideally, if I could, I would place a new combined spinal epidural um, to at least initiate some sort of surgical blockade while a patient is being prepared for surgery. Um, if, for example, I was not the most skilled person, I would, if I had the ability to like the colleague to do whoever could do the most fastest proficient neuraxial, I would have that person do it. Would you bolus the epidural catheter with concentrated local anesthetic to try to achieve a surgical level? In a patient who presented to the OR with a unilateral block, I would elect to not dose it with concentrated local anesthetic because my ability or my confidence in it to convert it to surgical anesthesia would be pretty low. Once I bolus a catheter with concentrated local anesthetic, at that point, my hands are tied for neuraxial. For example, if it doesn't work and the uteral block persists, then I definitely have to do general anesthesia. So let's say you do attempt the bolus with concentrated local anesthetic. It does not work. Would you now remove the epidural catheter and attempt a spinal technique? I would not. I think I would be very concerned about causing a high spinal if I did a spinal after a fully dosed uh, labor epidural catheter, and that puts the patient in an even more precarious situation um, with an unstable um, rising level, probably airway compromise and potentially dynamic compromise and certainly fetal compromise from hypotension. So I, I would not do that. Why is the patient at high risk after a epidural bolus for a high spinal? If I bolus the epidural with concentrated local anesthetic, and I'm assuming I gave a, a full dose, so let's say 20 cc's of 2%, and then I do a spinal, I don't know where all that local anesthetic is going to land or how it's going to manifest in the patient. Um, and so I would potentially be wearing some of that local anesthetic contributing to some intrathecal um, placement, some epidural placement, and the combination of, two, of those things are very unpredictable, especially in patients who already have difficult airway, have increased oxygen consumption, are going to desaturate, um, if, if I tell you general anesthesia, certainly, so, um, so that you know, would be a dangerous maneuver. Would you do general anesthesia at this point? At that point, if I dosed the epidural for surgery, it proved it didn't work, I would do general anesthesia. Okay. So let's assume that uh, in agreement with the obstetric team, you decide to move forward with general anesthesia. What are your concerns about general anesthesia in this patient? In this obese patient who is preeclamptic, who has been laboring, I have a couple of concerns. Um, certainly on induction of general anesthesia, they can have uh, extreme blight spikes in blood pressure that could potentially lead to uh, intracranial hemorrhage. I worry about that. I'd be worried about the laboring patient and difficult airway, especially if the patient's been on magnesium, who's preeclamptic and um, possibly has a... Um, um, engorged airway and enlarged tongue. I'd be worried about those things. As we discussed, I'd be worried about the hypertensive response and its effects on the heart. I'd be worried about pulmonary edema if I volume overloaded um, during my induction and not paying attention to my fluids. And so I'd be worried about aspiration. Again, a patient who's been laboring, possibly getting epidural opioids during, and now I place that patient at risk for um, aspiration. Okay. Would you allow the patient's husband to stay? Unfortunately, I think that at this point, if I had to convert to general anesthesia unexpectedly or emergently, I would ask the patient's husband to leave because the primary focus is taking care of this mother and getting her safely through 
uh, safely through this surgery. So I would ask him to leave. All right. Let's turn back to uh, Mike. At the conclusion of the operation, the patient appears weak and has a tidal volume of 150 mLs. Succinylcholine was the only neuromuscular relaxing given. A train of four monitor reveals four out of four twitches. What do you think is going on? Um, you know, 150 is um, it's pretty good. So this uh, this is this is not that bad. And you know, she might be a little weak, but you know. She's definitely on the right track to be extubated, so I would I would just kind of encourage her to breathe a little bit more and hopefully get a little better tall volumes. What could be contributing to her weakness? Hmm. I don't know. Um, what's that problem with succinylcholine? Is it something with the enzymes where they don't metabolize it? It could, it could be that, but I don't know. That's kind of rare. It's probably not that. Could the magnesium infusion have any role in the patient's weakness? Mm, I don't think so. What would you do? Huh. Well, was she easy to intubate? Would it matter in your decision? <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I guess if she was easy to intubate in the first place, uh, I might pull the tube to see what happened. I just put the tube back in if, if it didn't work. Um, I don't know. If, if I was in a hurry, I'd probably just take her intubated to the intensive care unit and let someone else deal with it. That'd probably be, I don't know, probably the second one, yeah, or the second one, for sure. Okay, Dr. Galvin, at the conclusion of the operation, the patient appears weak and has a tidal volume of 150 mLs. Succinylcholine was the only neuromuscular relaxant given. A train of four monitor reveals four out of four twitches. What do you think is going on? I think before I come to any conclusions, I just started to reevaluate my anesthetic. For example, were there any medication errors? Is my machine working properly? Even if my train of four monitor is working properly. So I'd have to assess all of kind of my environment first. At the conclusion of that, if I don't find any other reason for the patient to be weak, it's potential, it's potential maybe she could have um, pseudocholinesterate sufficiency. Um, that's possible. Could the magnesium infusion have any role in the patient's weakness? Magnesium does um, can potentiate neuromuscular blockade, so that's certainly possible. Um, so at that juncture, we could draw a magnesium level to see if she's super therapeutic and see if that has. But um, I guess you could potentially think about giving intravenous calcium to try to reverse some of the magnesium effects and see if that improves the patient's strength. But overall, I think this patient probably needs a little bit more careful monitoring, it appears. Would you extubate this patient? I would not extubate this patient. Um, one, if there is neuromuscular weakness um, in conjunction with the uh, postoperative fluishes of a patient who was previously pregnant, now is not. So all the autotransfusion of blood that was going to the uterus is now back in the systemic circulation. And this patient is preeclamptic, so they have potential for... Um, interstitial edema, we worried, for example, about um, uh, potential respiratory compromise. So between those two things, I think I would not activate this patient. Okay. Dr. Hofkamp, how would you wean this patient from the ventilator? Um, I would just have the intensivist do it because they usually know how to do this. And um, 
yeah, that's that's what I would do. I would I would consult an intensivist and just basically um, use their recommendations. Let's assume there's no intensivist at your hospital. You are caring for the patient in the intensive care unit. How will you wean her from the ventilator? Um, you know, I'd probably get respiratory therapy to come by and tell them to do what they usually do, and I'll just sign off on when it's time. I'll just be there when they want to take the tube out. Are there any particular concerns in weaning a patient who is postpartum or immediately postpartum? Um, you know, um, I guess that I'd want to wean her as quick as I could because she probably wants to start breastfeeding. So, yeah, that would be my concern, trying to get her weaned immediately so she can care for her baby. Okay. Dr. Galvin, how would you wean this patient from the ventilator, assuming you were caring for her in the intensive care unit? I probably would... Um and try to do a uh, focus examination to determine why she was weak, um, try to get a handle on her lung mechanics. So, again, for example, in this patient who is preeclampsia, who I did general anesthetic on, I might do a chest X-ray just to make sure that there isn't any pulmonary edema and things like that. Um, and then I would probably start her on a, um, a SIMV mode, so a mode that gives her assisted breath but also mandatory right underneath. Um, to try to offset that uh, that work of breathing. And then once she can be on a, just a pressure-supported-only mode or a spontaneous mode um, and can follow commands, um, I might consider excavating after that. Okay. Are there any uh, specific concerns in someone who is immediately postpartum? Sure. As I had mentioned previously, I would be worried about, again, fluid shifts and the autotransfusion that happens immediately postpartum, which should resolve in about a day. And I would also again, be worried about airway changes, uh, particularly around um, the, the glottis, and that would be increased swelling, um, which may last for up to 24 to 48 hours afterwards. I would be concerned about that. Okay. Dr. Hofkamp, after being extubated, the patient complains of a headache. What is the differential diagnosis? It's probably a migraine. What else could it be? Um, I don't know, just a regular headache? Is that, is that like a tension headache? Yeah, so either a tension headache or a migraine headache. What would be a focused history and physical exam that would help you determine the cause? Well, um, if I walked into the room and it was dark, I'd probably turn on all the lights and see what happened as far as, like, you know, how she reacted. Uh, I've seen a lot of people fake headaches because they want narcotics. And, um, you know, if they really respond to turn on the light, that means they're probably not faking it. But if they don't really react to the light being turned on, they're probably faking it. And um, I just ask them just basic questions like when the headaches start and what is it like and... Um, I'd probably get an ophthalmoscope and try to look in the pupils and possibly get someone to dilate the pupils for me. Let's I'd be concerned about that. Let's assume this is a postdural puncture headache. What would you do for the patient? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Postdural puncture. I forgot to mention that. Yes, that's definitely the differential. I'm sorry, what, what did you say again? What would you do for the patient assuming this was a postdural puncture headache? Oh, I would just give her a bunch of caffeine and uh, dilated too. Definitely downloaded. 
And if the headache persisted? Um, you know, I would tell her it'd get better on its own. Let's assume it didn't, and you decided to place an epidural blood patch. How would you do that? Oh, an epidural blood patch. Okay, so, um, well, um, I guess I would get one of the epidural kits, and I would, um, if she already had an IV, that'd be awesome, because I would just draw blood from the existing IV, and then I would do an epidural, and I would take blood from the existing IV, assuming it drew back, and I would inject it into the epidural space, and um, and I would inject as much as I could until she started complaining of pain. Okay. Dr. Galvin, after being extubated, the patient complains of a headache. What is the differential diagnosis? In a um, patient who is postpartum, there can be several reasons for a headache. Um, it could be migraines. It could be tension headache. It could be she might not have eaten for a while. Um, certainly, a patient with preeclampsia, you would worry about headache in relation to preeclampsia or potential intracranial hemorrhage um, from elevated blood pressures. And, of course, as we did a neuraxial on her, I would be worried or uh, concerned about posterior puncture headache. Okay. What, uh, how would you conduct a focus history and physical exam? Sure. First, I would in-person examination, examine the patient, ask them about the nature of the headache, the location, intensity, what makes it worse, what makes it better, um, those type of basic questions. So just for um, facial symmetry, any associated symptoms like blurred vision or nausea, vomiting, chest pain, shortness of breath. I'd take a look at the vitals to see what those were. Again, especially in a patient who's preeclamptic, the preeclampsia syndrome doesn't necessarily um, go away just because of the delivery process, and um, that would be my exam. Okay. Assume that this is a postural puncture headache. What would you do for the patient? I'd first counsel the patient that we could either take a conservative route or we could do a route that involves epidural blood patch. Uh, so certainly in the conservative route, that would involve the patient making sure they're staying hydrated, um, offer some non-opioid analgesics. Um, it's difficult to counsel the patients to rest because they certainly want to be involved with their baby's care, but, you know, rest as needed. Um, and just let them know that the natural course, it probably should go away in about um, seven to 15 days. However, offer epidural blood patch, given that we did interact with anesthetic on this patient, and let them know that that has also great efficacy in this particular type of headache. And how would you perform an epidural blood patch? Uh, first, I would excuse everybody from the room that is non-essential, so no family members, um, you know, no, um, no non-essential people. Um, and then I would perform it in the usual fashion, a, a sterile technique, certainly. Um, and ideally, I would like to have an assistant who would be uh, sterile, uh, as sterile as possible, draw the blood so that when I access the epidural space, I can just be handed the blood anywhere from 10 to 20 cc's and inject that slowly into the epidural space for the patient. Why would you limit yourself to 10 to 20 cc's? Uh, well, certain studies suggest that that's about the range of um, of blood injectate that helps resolve the headache but doesn't result in things against such like back pain or distension of the epidural space from a, a medium blood that is usually not there. Okay. Thank you both very much.
Great job. So uh, let's take a minute to just open it up. Do either of you have any comments um, on either, you know, kind of points that you specifically made wrong, Mike, or things that you specifically uh, corrected that he did, uh, Jackie? Now, I think a lot of it ideally was already highlighted for people, but if there's anything you wanted to point out, uh, please go ahead. Um, I think that one of the things I tried to point out was asking the examiner questions. Yep. And so you should not ask the examiner questions about the patient. Uh, the strategy should be to assume the patient is as healthy as you can make the patient. And if the examiner wants to tell you otherwise, he or she will tell you otherwise. And so that was one of the intentional mistakes I was trying to make. Um, another thing I was uh, trying to do was to quote studies that I didn't really know much about. I think that's very dangerous to say things about studies unless you have a very strong grasp of them. You don't necessarily have to quote all the authors and where it was done and all the specifics, but if you're going to quote a study, you better know what that study is about because the person who wrote that study might be the one sitting across the table from you. (laughs) Absolutely. I didn't chase you down on that only for the the interest of time, but you could easily get an examiner, even if they weren't the one who wrote it, they could ask you, tell me more, you know, what were were the methodological pitfalls of that study? Uh, They could really push you. So you have to, as you said, you have to be careful. And also the question thing, again, I probably should have done a better job of of refusing to answer your questions, but you're absolutely right. The examiners often will turn it right back on you. Why do you want to know? How would that change your technique, et cetera? So um, asking questions generally not a good idea. Like you said, you can always say, assuming the patient is not hypertensive, I would, such and such, instead of asking, are they hypertensive? And just uh, two more things. One was um, I was trying to be very rigid with the plan of, uh, in, the, in the operating room, I was very rigid about not putting the patient to sleep, and and that can be the death knell on oral bore exam as well, like just being completely sticking to your guns and not at all considering an alternative plan. And then um, another mistake was, as I was just trying to spew out just wrong information, like with the epidural blood patch, like just saying that, you know, I would do it with the IV that's already in place, which is absolutely what you shouldn't do. It has to be a fresh blood stick and that I would give as much blood as I could get in there without her hurting. And so, so yeah, so, um, so that was the other mistake I was trying to demonstrate, just a lack of fund of knowledge. Yep. So. And great. Well done. <laughs> Jackie, anything so to add? Um, sure. I, so what I try to do, the approach I try to do, was make my answers about this particular patient and not, uh, for example, to contrast it with Mike's answers. Like, well, my institution always is epidural, so that's what I'm going to do. So I try to make it about what is the best for this particular patient in the STEM um, and so my answers were, were based around that and not some sort of you know, nebulous, uh, nebulous concepts. Yeah, great. And I would say the one thing I'll add is the ventilator weaning question. I did not uh, take it any further just in inter- interest of time. Yes. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, an examiner might go on to say, you know, can you give me more specifics? What would make you comfortable extubating this patient in terms of specific parameters? And that's where you would want to get into tidal volumes that, you know, an average tidal volume that you might want to see of maybe six to eight cc's per kilo of ideal body weight, et cetera. I didn't push it on that, but just so listeners know, you might uh, get that. And so you do want to have in your head general criteria that are your extubation criteria. And that honestly is 
you'll a lot of times get asked, well, would it be different for this patient? You know, mm-hmm. be, because she's postpartum, or it could be another patient. Would it be different for this patient because he's obese, or would it be different for this patient right. because he's got COPD? But in my mind, almost all the time, if you have pretty good criteria, then those criteria might be harder for someone with those comorbidities to meet. Mm-hmm. But once they meet them, it's probably uh, they will apply to any patient. So if you have a patient who is not acidotic, not hypercarbic, satting well on minimal oxygen, has a good tidal volume, is awake and alert, is following commands. Uh, has a stable acid base status, uh, has uh, n- has a reasonable cuff leak, is able to uh, take a good negative inspiratory force, then uh, and doesn't have any ongoing bleeding in the airway uh, or major surgical instability, major surgical bleeding in the abdomen, something that might mean they're about to go back to the operating room. But if they meet all those criteria, it doesn't really matter if they have COPD or if they're postpartum. Uh, if they are able to meet all those criteria, and they're probably safe to extubate. Would you guys agree with that? That was Absolutely. a much better answer than my answer. No, no, no. But, you know, and you may not always have time for all that, but I think it's good to have just for people to have it in mind in case you get pushed on it. All right. Well, this was great. I think this was really useful and hope people will find it so. Uh, thanks to both of you for coming back on the show. Thank you, Judd. All right. Hopefully that was useful. Check out the website, acrac.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Leave a comment so everyone can learn from what you have to say. What did you think about this episode? Was this how you would have managed the patient? Was this format useful of doing them juxtaposed instead of going all the way through? I'm sure we'll do another oral board review at some point, so let us know what you find useful in terms of format. Of course, you can also get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. You can sign up for our mailing list in the upper right-hand corner of the website at ACRAC.com. Also, if you're a fan of the show, check out iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show when they are looking for an anesthesia podcast. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, we, of course, would be very grateful if you would check out patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you donate, it would be much appreciated. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Mike Hofkamp and Dr. Jacqueline Galvin, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.